How about we pray and then we're going to look at this part of God's word together. Loving Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks and we pray that you'll give us ears to hear. Uh, may we take on board what you say to us from this part of your word uh, and we pray that it'll make a big difference to how we live. Uh, we pray that you'll get the glory for that and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as Matt said, this is uh, a part of the scriptures which gives rise to the name of churches. Uh, I don't know exactly because I haven't asked whether this passage was in mind as this congregation was planted. Uh, it may well have been. I know of two other churches uh, in Australia called Salt, uh, or Salt Community Church. And I know a bunch of churches that go by the name City on a Hill. Uh, you see both of these ideas here in this passage. But I want to look at this particular passage, somewhat well known and maybe less well understood with you today, thinking about the topic of discipleship. And what I want to do as I start that is get you to think a little bit about what comes to mind for you when you hear the word discipleship. Uh, maybe you'd even like to just talk quickly with the person beside you, and, and uh, or maybe twos or threes, and just if something is there in your mind when it comes to discipleship, what is it? What comes to mind? And then I'll get some responses from you. Go for it. Who'd like, to, uh, who'd like to say what the person beside them thought about when it came to discipleship? Any ideas? Just kind of put up your hand and call it out. Good idea. Greg? Example. An example? Yeah. Leading and teaching and mentoring someone in the good news. Leading, teaching, mentoring someone in the good news? Investing. Investing in somebody? Yeah. We like the idea of disciplined life. A disciplined life, yeah. Yeah. People that God might put into your life that you can mentor, support, train, uh, particularly new Christians. Yeah. Any other insights? Yep. Yeah. To be a leader. A disciple people to become more like Christ. Yeah. 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 I think there's a lot of different ideas that are out there when it comes to discipleship. Uh, I was involved in university ministry for a number of years and there was a group on the university campus that were very, very strong when it came to discipleship. A group that you may have heard of called Navigators. Uh, it started in the military, uh, it moved across into universities and other places. And for the Navigators, discipleship meant something very distinctive. It meant meeting one-on-one -on -one with another person, doing it week after week after week, even year after year, to invest your life into their life. And for me, for a period of time, that's what I thought discipleship was. So if I wasn't doing that with somebody, or if someone wasn't doing that with me, I felt that I was not involved in discipleship. A little later, I remember a minister in a church that I was involved in encouraging people to be involved in discipleship. And what that meant was they had a program that was going on in their church, particular small groups that met together that were called discipleship groups. 
And the idea was that you would meet again with a set group of people and this time follow through a particular curriculum that would help you uh, to live out the Christian life, to understand a whole range of things to do with it so that you could be discipled. Well, I, I want to take the ideas that we've got, the experiences that we've got, and put them through the filter of what Jesus is talking about here in this Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at this for a number of weeks and we'll continue to see what it is that's going on when Jesus calls disciples. Jesus is calling people, remember, back in chapter 4, to come follow me. And the idea of being a disciple was to be a learner, one who would follow Jesus and learn from Jesus. Some have suggested that maybe the way to use the word today is to talk about being an apprentice. The master, Jesus, is apprenticing people. He's teaching them, he's showing them, he's leading them, he's instructing them. He wants them to be like him. Well, we're going to have a think about what discipleship training looks like and therefore what it will mean for us. Because if you look on the back of your handouts, uh, or even on the front of the handouts, you'll know that we've actually adopted a discipleship uh, term to speak of who we are at Salt Church. Notice on the front it says, Growing Followers of Jesus Christ. And on the back it says, Growing Followers of Jesus Christ from the Hastings to the Camden Haven. We could say, Growing Disciples of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And that's what we're doing. We are disciples or followers of Jesus and we are growing. That is, we're growing to be more like Jesus and we're growing in number as we call others to become disciples of Jesus. But let's have a look at what Jesus has to say in this pretty well-known passage about salt and light. Now, I'm going to flip it, first of all. I'm going to look, first of all, at what he has to say about light before we look at what he has to say about salt. Because I think what he says here about light is actually a little easier to understand. There's a bit more explanation. It's a bit less kind of open to interpretation. And it may just help us to understand what he's talking about when he comes to talking about salt. Well, let's come at it first of all then with the light of the world. And I'm just going to recap by reading 14 to 16. Jesus says to them, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, or a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, there's two images here. There's the city on a hill and there's the light that is not to be hidden. Um, the first image is one that you find in the Bible. And uh, you'll notice I've put some references here. And I'm going to start by reading the first of those references. Background, not surprisingly, again, from the book of Isaiah. You'll see so much of Isaiah in the beginning of Matthew. Let me read these words. This is from Isaiah chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 2. In the last days... The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. 
the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now there's a, a picture here from the prophet Isaiah that God's going to establish his temple, his city on a high mountain and God's people will come to that place. And from that place, God will teach his ways to those around about. And notice particularly in verse 2, it will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. So there's this great hope of Jerusalem or the city of God with the temple, the place of God, being established on the highest of the mountains so that all the nations see what God is doing and they come to God to find God's favour. Now, of course, that's imagery. Um, it's not specifically talking about Mount Everest, which is the highest of the mountains, nor a physical city sitting on top of Everest, nor a temple. Now, it's saying that in this prominent place, the mountain of God, God's name, God's glory, God's teaching, God's law, God's ways will be made known through his people to all of the nations. And then if we were to come down a few verses in Isaiah 2, listen to this. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So he's just declared this wonderful mountain where God's going to spread his word to all nations. And then the call, come and walk in the light of the Lord. Well, that's the first reference that you've got there. Let me give you another one, because this reference shapes so much of our understanding, not only of what the people of God are to be, but of who Jesus is to be. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 49. Now, in Isaiah, there are a number of prophecies about the servant who will come. The most famous of these is Isaiah 53, where the servant suffers and gives his life as a ransom for many. But before that, there's a number of other servant songs or servant prophecies. And this one in Isaiah chapter 49 is important, I think, for understanding this. Let me read from verse 5. Now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. Right, so th this servant, God's saying, um, I'm going to use you to bring back all the people of Israel who belong to me to be mine. But that's too small a job for you. I've got a bigger job than that. Then he says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Now, I don't want to get lost in the background here, but we see that there's to be this mountain which is declaring the salvation of God, and there's a servant who is declaring the salvation of God, and they're both, both shedding light on what's going on, and this servant is going to be one who gathers people from all the nations to belong to God. So when Jesus says... 
You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light under a, la a light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Rather, you need to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying there is now hope for salvation. There's hope for Israel. There's hope for the nations. And we saw, didn't we, back in chapter 4, that Jesus quotes from Isaiah and says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so Jesus starts to preach the good news of the kingdom. So what's Jesus saying to his disciples? He's saying to them that they are the hope for a dark world. They are the hope for people who are living under the shadow of death and judgment. And if they do not turn to God, they will be cast out into darkness. But these people, these followers of Jesus, these disciples, they are to be the ones that God will use to bring people from all nations to believe in him. So what he says to the disciples as he gathers them on the hill is, you are the light. That's your job. That's who you are and that's your job description. And you'll notice I put it in capital letters there. In the original language, you can just say you are the light, or you can say you, pointing, are the light. This is a you, disciples, you're the light. Now, that's not just a cute metaphor. What that's saying is that the promises of God are going to be fulfilled through Jesus and his disciples. God wants to bring salvation to all nations. How's he going to do that? By discipleship training his followers. By teaching his followers to speak and to live in this way. They are to be the ones who will shine a light upon others. And you know the Apostle Peter really grasped this. So later when he writes his letter, listen to the way he describes the, the people of God. He says in 1 Peter 2, which is inside your outline there, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then down at the end he says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that is, those who don't believe in God, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Friends, this is the job description for Christians. This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. This is what Jesus is discipling us to be, light. He wants us to be light. He wants us to stand out in a dark world to shine light on the truth. He wants us to live good lives among the world around about us so that people see the difference and they're pointed towards God, that they might glorify God on the day he visits us. God is calling us to be the people who shine a light into the darkness. In other words, God is saying Christians are the hope of the world. Not scientists. Not people who invent vaccines. Not governments. Not economists. Not teachers. Not surf lifesavers. Not large corporations. Not the media. 
He's saying Christians are actually the hope of the world. We are the people who can shine light into the dark places that separate people from God. And we'll see more of what that looks like as we read on through the Sermon on the Mount. But that's your job description, Christian. Brother, sister, you belong to Christ. You've been called to be a follower. And a follower who has a light that shines upon Jesus and that shines the darkness away. And we even get a little description of what that will be. See there, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. How do you shine a light? By living distinctively. By living a good life. By living transparently differently to the people around about you. By having different values. By having different morals. By having different uh, agendas. By having different motivation. By being distinctive. And it's this distinctive element, I think, that is specifically spelled out in the first metaphor, the metaphor of salt. So let's go to that one. Here we have Jesus saying, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, what is he getting at when he talks about salt? Who's got some ideas as to what salt might refer to? How might salt be used? Marty? To add flavour. To add flavour, okay, yeah. In fact, you get a biblical example of that uh, in Colossians chapter 4, where it says, let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Right? So it's clearly an example of adding flavour. What else might salt be used for? Preserving. Preserving things. Yeah, in the day before refrigerators, you would salt meat to keep it for a long period of time. Um, I understand beef jerky is a bit like that. You dry it out, you salt it, and then you chew on it, and if you clean it eastward, you just spit it out all the time. Right. Uh, what else might salt be used for? Yeah. Is it uh, I heard two then. Farm salt. Farm salt? Bath. Bath salts, yeah. To pamper the skin. Okay, yeah. Fair enough. Some people need it. What else do we hear? Disinfection. Disinfectant, yeah, yeah. Yeah, rub salt into a wound. It's a good thing to do, <laughs> and it hurts. Yeah, what else? Okay, well, let, let me tell you, there's a couple of other ideas from the ancient world uh, that we see with salt. One is a catalyst for fire. Don't understand how, but a catalyst for fire. Another idea is that of being a fertiliser, um, and you're probably more familiar with that. But there's one idea that is highlighted a number of times in the scriptures that probably wouldn't come to mind for us. And so I'm going to raise it because I wonder if that's what's in mind when Jesus speaks. And that is the idea of God's covenant promises being connected with salt. Um, I'll give you an example. I won't give you all the examples, but I'm going to read one which comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 5. Listen to this. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? 
And you, you can read a number of references to salt and the association of salt with the covenant. But here, keep in mind, this is a big thing that he's talking about. David being the almighty eternal king, a, a king forever in the line of David. And he's saying God set up a covenant that is his promise that he would keep. And it's a covenant of salt. Now, I wonder whether the covenant idea is behind this because so much of what we see going on in the Sermon on the Mount is like God establishing his new disciples. There's a movement from Israel who are under the first covenant to the disciples who are under the new covenant. And the new covenant will involve God's people, the disciples and those who follow Jesus, being those who live distinctive lives so that people are brought to the truth about God, to the gospel of Jesus, so they hear about the kingdom of God and are moved to repent, to turn back to God. So if we were to understand it in those terms, maybe it's saying something like this. You are the salt of the earth. That is, you are God's covenant hope for this earth. You are the means by which God is going to bring about his promises. But if you lose your saltiness, if you turn your back on God, if you turn your back on his promises, if you turn your back on his Messiah, if you turn your back on your calling to be distinctive people, then you're good for nothing other than to be put out and trampled underfoot. And there's another image of salt in the Bible. So many times we read of destruction and judgment being associated with salt being trampled underfoot. Now, if I've understood that right, then maybe we've got two images, light and salt, that work together. If I've understood it wrong and it's really about flavouring, then go to Colossians 4 and speak in a gracious, salty way the truth of Jesus. Or if it's about preserving, then live a life which is worth hanging on to and holding dear and keeping so that it's distinctive to those around about you. Either way, what he's saying is this. You, and again, it's emphatic you. It's nobody else out there. He's saying you, disciples. You, salt church. You are to be salt. So stay salty. Now, I was really hoping for a cold, windy afternoon so I could wear my hoodie that says stay salty. Uh, some of you have got that. That hoodie, Christian surfers hoodie, stay salty. But that's our calling, friends, to stay salty, to actually stay as God's uh, disciples, as, as followers of Jesus, be distinctive in that way, live lives that are consistent with Christ. Because that is where the hope for our world lies, in our distinctiveness. You see, when the church is just like the world around about it, who knows where to turn for hope? But when the church is distinctive and stands up and speaks up and lights up the darkness around about, then people can find their way to the truth. So how do we put this into practice? How do we make this our mission? Let me leave you with a number of suggestions. First of all, we are on about growing followers of Jesus. If we are to be growing followers of Jesus, that is to be who we are deep inside and is to be what we're on about in relationship with others. We want to see more and more people become disciples of Christ and we want to grow into maturity as disciples of Christ. So what should we do? 
let me encourage us first of all to pray. Jesus is going to go and talk about prayer in a couple of weeks, so I won't say too much about it now. But this is not something we can do for ourselves. We need God's help, so pray. Secondly, I want us to see the incredible pleasure, privilege and benefit that is hospitality. Jesus, we see, constantly showing hospitality to people around about him. We see people gathering together with Jesus, Jesus providing them with, with food, Jesus sharing around tables with people, Jesus gathering with those who are sinful, those who are recognised as outcasts, and Jesus welcoming them into his midst. And I think a very distinctively countercultural way that we can be salt and light is by practising hospitality. That might simply be saying day to people regularly. It might be inviting people to come in and have a cuppa. It might be welcoming people to your home. People that you don't think are going to invite you back. It might be offering people help in all kinds of practical ways. It might be taking the stranger, the refugee, the outcast, the person who is disregarded by others and bringing them into your welcome and so loving them practically. So prayer, hospitality, let me suggest conversation. It's so important to speak up, to actually engage with people, to listen to people, to talk with people. Conversation is not preaching. Conversation is listening and responding. Listen and respond. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, goes on having said that our job is to declare the praises of him who brought us from darkness to light, to say, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Conversation. And lastly, invitation. Invitation. Be inviting people into your life. Be inviting people to open the Word of God. Be inviting people to take a book and read it. Be inviting people to come to, and we are hoping uh, this term even, God willing, uh, to put together a, a course, an evening thing, where people can investigate the truth of Christianity and invite them to church. Maybe they've got a negative, prejudiced picture of what church is like. Maybe God wants to blow that out of the water. So friends, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's your calling. Let's live it out.